0: Witnessing this Saturday and remember to men to sign up for the men's retreat. How's that for quick announcements? All right. Okay, Second Chronicles. We are in. Anyone remember where we are? You guys been following me along? Huh? Anyone? Where are we? What chapter? Oh, come on. You're hurting my feelings. It was good last time. Okay. Chapter four. Chapter eight? Oh, man. Chapter four. I know some of these Old Testament books get a little tedious, but try to stay awake chapter 4, Second Chronicles. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you as we're getting into your word and Lord, I know this evening, there's just a whole lot in these chapters that point us to our Savior Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, just as you gave, those two men on the way to Emmaus a Bible study about you, I pray that you do that with us this evening. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So the first nine chapters of Second Chronicles deal. With the reign of Solomon. We're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Old Testament, actually through the Bible. I'm going to go right through. Eventually we'll get there. And but the Second Chronicles, first nine chapters deal with the reign of Solomon. There's six full chapters are dedicated to the temple. So the Holy Spirit chose to put six full chapters dedicated to the temple. That, you know, as we're studying the word, we need to remember, just, this is really important that we remember is the emphasis that God puts on the temple. Now remember from uh, last week, uh, there was three things that we mentioned that the temple represent, or it's a foreshadowing of three things. One, you, the life of the believer. 1 Corinthians 6 says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The second thing, the temple also is a foreshadow and represents the church. It says in Ephesians 2:21. It says referring to the church, uh, it, it says in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord that's referring to us. I'm not speaking of course about four walls but the body of or, or a building but the body of Christ. Also, Jesus in John chapter 2. So this is the third thing. First, it's our own body. Second thing, the, uh, the body of Christ. Most importantly, though, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Remember, in John chapter 2, uh, he was asked to validate his authority. What authority do you have to teach these things? Jesus was asked and he said destroy this temple and in three days it will rise again. So the temple also represents Jesus himself. Uh, In in chapter 12 of Matthew when the Pharisees were confronting him for not observing their Sabbath traditions uh, remember Jesus said that um, he said uh, there is one greater here than the temple. Referring to himself. So truly Jesus was either a madman or he was the Messiah. Because who would say something like that? He also said, by the way, there's one who's greater than Solomon here. Referring to his, himself. And so uh, in Revelation 21, it, um, it says that uh, John uh, says that I saw when he got the vision of heaven. He said, I saw no temple there for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. In eternity, Jesus replaces the temple. Temple is just something that uh, God gave Israel for a certain time in their history to begin introducing them to who he was. And so Jesus Jesus, uh, is uh, the temple now. Now in chapter 4, we have the furnishings of the temple. We have the furnishings of the temple in chapter 4. And so it begins with verse 1, moreover, he, meaning Solomon, made a bronze altar. 20 cubits was its length, 20 cubits its width, and 10 cubits its height. So this is an altar. And what happened on the altar? Well, you would have the sin offerings and you would have the burn offerings and, and uh, you would have the trespass offerings. And uh, it was there that when we studied in Leviticus chapter 1, the priest put his hand uh, on the the animal and actually the person sacrificing the animal. Uh, uh, the animal, bring the animal as a sacrifice, the lamb or whatever it was, put their hand on it and it was slaughtered right in front of them. And, you know, the blood came out and, and it was supposed to be a representation, uh, it, it, was, it was a representation of, of the lamb of God who would be slaughtered for us, but it was also, there was this, this incredible recognition of the people. Can you imagine putting your hand on a bull and having some priest right in front of your eyes slit a, a, a lamb or a, cow, or a cow's throat? And so what it did in the, in the hearts of the people is it really made them think real a lot about their sin and, the, and that their sin has, uh, uh, has resulted in the death, in, in the pouring out of the blood. And that's what our sin does. And, you know, sometimes we, uh, you know, we no longer obviously have this system where we go to the temple and we put our hand on a, uh, you know, a, a bull or something and have it, sl- you know, the, the, the throat of the bull slit in front of our eyes. And so sometimes we don't have that same appreciation of just the gravity of what our sin has done. But the fact of the matter is, is that. Christ's blood was poured because of our sin. You know, you're this piece of gossip, whatever you gave in the last month, or that grouchy disposition, or yelling at your husband or roommate or whoever, that caused the blood of Jesus to flow. The blood of Jesus to pour out. Just as the blood poured out of the bull. Poured out of uh, of the lamb. And so. It's so important. You know. We, we do miss that part. Not that I necessarily would want to be. Able, you know. Back in that sacrificial system. We have something much better now. But. You know. That's one thing that we probably could use a lot more of. Just the recognition. Of our sin. And it's. It's it's resulted in a flowing of blood. And it was the blood of Christ. Without, uh, the, re, without the shedding of, uh, of blood, there's no remission of sin, the Bible says. Christ, our sacrifice. And that's why a communion is so important. That is why communion is listed in Acts 2, verse 42, as one of the four things, in addition to being in the Word, being in fellowship, being in prayer, communion is that fourth thing. That makes up the life of a Christian. That's why it's so important. Because we have to remember the blood. The the access to the Lord is only one reason. So, this bronze altar. This very large bronze altar. Where they had these burnt offerings. Or these sin offerings. And a lot of blood being poured out on this altar. A lot of blood being poured out on the cross. This is a picture of the cross. Verse 2, now this is int- really interesting stuff here, if, if, if um, we take the time to slow down. It says, then he made the sea of cast bronze. Now, the sea, this was a, 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 like a basin, but they called it a sea. Why? The thing was so huge. Ten cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. And so what this was was a huge water tank, at a, a, on the outside of the temple, right, um, right next to the, um, right next to the bronze altar, altar, bronze altar where the uh, sacrifices happened. It was a big sort of water tank, and uh, on it. Uh, actually it says in verse 3 and under it was the likeness of oxen encircling it all around ten to a cubit all the way around the sea the oxen were cast in two rows when it was cast so here, here, here's um, what's going on let me translate the, the dimensions here this is a huge water tank fifteen feet across seven and a half feet high so it's like a swimming pool forty five feet around and it stood on top of these um, oxen, so it was sort of up in the air, and these oxen uh, were um, their ornamental oxen were uh, in in two rows, uh, sort of holding the things uh, up and wh- why was this Why was this thing for it 's called the sea because the priests used to wash in it uh, after the sacrifices were made at the altar and wash themselves. It was a very bloody business, you know, this this altar, a lot of people said if, you know, of course there are a lot of Jews in Israel, Orthodox, that are wanting to uh, rebuild the temple and, uh, you know, one of the biggest speculations is, is, you know, if that happens, when it happens, because according to the Bible, it's going to happen, man, when they start up this animal sacrifice thing, People are going to be going berserk. I mean, you know, can you imagine the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals? I mean, uh, you know, picketing the place. Uh, It was there's a lot of blood in these. And again, as Christians, we look at that, and and that was all a foreshadowing of the blood that Jesus shed for us, and it was meant to point them to Jesus. So Jesus on the road to Emmaus when he's talking to those two disciples. very good chance. He was right in here in chapter four, Second Chronicles, saying, look, this, this is pointing to, to me. And so these priests, they would wash. But there was also, by the way, there was certain baptisms or washings that the priest, high priest had to do before, um, I think, he went into the um, Holy of Holies once a year. And uh, that was, by the way, some people um, ask sometimes, why did Jesus have to get baptized? He never sinned. So why, what's up with that? Well, one is, you know, standard answer is our example. But I, I to be our example, I and mean, we follow him in it. And, uh, but the, I believe the, the, the number one thing, the reason Jesus was baptized is because he was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy. He was fulfilling. He is our high priest. The book of Hebrews calls Jesus our high priest. High priest was baptized. And remember what he said, um John, John Baptist goes, wait a second, why am I baptizing you? What's wrong with this picture? And then what do he say? He said, to fulfill all righteousness. So he was fulfilling, he was fulfilling really a, 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 an Old Testament requirement, a, a, a prophetical thing, that he was the high priest. And so um, it, this does speak here, though, of Christ, our purifier, uh, remember in the book of Titus, I read that a lot in our, early, our morning services when I'm talking about salvation. Chapter 3, it says that the Holy Spirit washes us, it cleanses us, uh, he cleanses us rather, he, uh, he regenera- uh, uh, regenerates us. Uh, The Bible says that in Revelation 19, Jesus called uh, the word of God. Well, we're washed, the Ephesians says, in the water of the word. And so this big bronze sea, it's called, is where they did uh, their washing here. Verse 6, it says, he made ten lavers. So these are smaller sort of basins. And put five on the right side and five on the left to wash in them such things as they offered For the burnt offering, they would wash in them, but the sea was for the priest to wash in. And so, um, before the sacrifices were offered, they took these ten smaller basins, uh, what was being offered, and they would wash these lambs or whatever uh, in these smaller basins before they were offered up to God. And some say this speaks of how Jesus... The Bible says actually twice, once in Hebrews, and you can shout out if you want if you remember the other verse. I can't remember the other place it's at, but Jesus is ever interceding for us. And some uh, speak, some say that this speaks to just these ten basins, speak to the fact that you know Jesus. We pray one thing, He washes it up, He cleans it up, and, and and. and offers up what we're supposed to be praying. You know, Billy Graham's wife once said, you know, God doesn't answer all my prayers. If he did, I would have married the wrong man several times, <laughs> is what she said. And uh, that's an interesting thought, um, that, you know, she was praying, you know, God, give me this man or, or whatever. And she was offering that up. And and But the Holy Spirit, Jesus knows how to uh, uh, to to clean up what we offer to the Lord. The other thing is, it's just our service to the Lord. The service that we offer to the Lord is so inadequate. There's so, so many flaws. Albert was talking about it in, the, in, in worship today. I really appreciated that, by the way, Albert. Uh, the fact that some, even our worship that we offer is so inadequate. Well, you know, the Holy Spirit cleans that all up, doesn't he? And, and so some see these ten bases, basins here where the offerings were washed before putting on the altars is, is, is represents how Jesus, the Holy Spirit, cleans up our offerings. Verse 7 says, And they made ten lampstands of gold. So we're, we've now sort of left the outer part of the temple where... You have the sort of the court of the temple where you have the bronze altar. You have what's called this, the sea, the basin uh, there, and the and the smaller basins. That's on the outside. Now we're going into what's called the holy place. That's the actual inside the structure of the temple. It says, and there was ten lampstands of gold according to their design. And he set them in the temple, five on the right side and five on the left. Verse 8, he made ten tables and placed them in the temple, five on the right side and five on the left. Now, how many uh, lampstands did the tabernacle, which was transported from one place to another out in the desert, how many lampstands were in the tabernacle? You guys remember that? Uno. How many tables were there? How many tables of showbread were there? One. One. So this temple thing, it's like multiplying everything by by ten. Things are um, a lot bigger uh, here and also a lot more ornate. Verse 9, it says, Furthermore, he made the court of the priests and the great court and the doors for the court. <coughs> and he overlaid these doors with what? Bronze. So these big bronze doors led into the holy place in the temple, bronze or brass. Now, brass, bronze speaks in the Bible of judgment. As you know, Jesus, I think it's in John 10, says, I am the door, I am the door. And the only way we can ever enter into the presence of God is to realize that Jesus was judged for our sins, and, and so we enter through the bronze door, through through Jesus, our our door, our some translations I think in John 10 say our gate, our gateway into the presence of God. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a chance. Verse eleven. Then Huram made the pots and the shovels and the bowls. And so this is getting down to um, a lot of the detail here. Verse eighteen. It said, and Solomon had all these articles made in such great abundance that the weight of the bronze was not determined the weight of the bronze was not determined again what does bronze uh, stand for in the bible judgment you know last sunday we were sunday morning we were talking about jesus being judged on the cross and it says here that the weight of the bronze was not was not determined. In other words, there was, it was so much bronze, they couldn't even figure out how much it was. And, and you know, it's like that with Jesus' judgment, what he was judged for us for, on the cross, what he went through. The You know, he said, my God, my God, why have I forsaken me? And, and, and we'll never know the true cost. We'll be pondering for all eternity and worshiping him for all eternity. For even as we get more and more of a glimpse of the judgment that he went through, so that we could enter into an eternal relationship with him, and I just heard a great message on that this week. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, Jesus for all eternity, he's in the presence of the Father, in the bosom of the Father, and then all of a sudden he's having—literally, Bible says he—he he had to—he went to hell for us. He tasted judgment for us, uh, and so uh, the bronze, the weight of the bronze, was not determined. Verse twenty-two says, um, "The doors." Let's actually let's read verse twenty-two. It says, "The trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, and the censers were pure gold. As for the entry of the sanctuary, its inner doors to the most holy place, and the doors, of the main hall of the temple, were." Gold. So, a lot of gold also being laid out. Many Bible scholars have put, remember in the earlier chapters, we saw how many talents of gold were offered up to build the temple and to, and to use on the temple. Some scholars have added it all up, $10 billion, some estimate. Remember, we read in chapter 2 about there are 70,000 workers carrying burdens, that meaning carrying the stones from the quarry to... Uh, the temple. There's 80,000 uh, people, men, doing quarrying, you know, picking away, chipping away at the stones. Remember the stones of the temple? There's no hammering at the site of the temple. It was all out in the quarry. They fitted them perfectly, and then they went into and just placed them. They were already in place uh, by the time they showed up um, at the temple. It says in... Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated the silver, the gold, and all its furnishing and he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And so it took seven years. You know, it was, again, it was a small structure, not much bigger than. The size of this room, maybe a little bigger than this, what the temple was. It took seven years, though. A whole lot uh, of time went into it. And remember, again, what the temple represents. It represents, among other things, you. You are the temple of God. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know something? It takes time for God to complete that temple, to do that work. To do the chipping and chiseling away in your life, to do the refining, to do the pruning. And it, it, it takes time. And sometimes, you know, uh, you look at your life and you're like, oh, man, this is just so discouraging. I, I wanted to be so much farther along with the Lord than this. I mean, what's up with this? It takes time it takes time and, and remember the other thing the temple represents it also represents the church Ephesians chapter 2 it takes time for churches to grow and prosper and you know if nothing else this should be a this should be a motivation our part not to judge other churches not to judge other Christians it just takes time everyone's under construction you know you hear that as a as an, expr- uh, as an expression you know, I'm under construction or he's under construction. Well, you know, where they get that? They get it from the book of Chronicles <laughs> and, and Second Kings. We, you know, this whole thing that it takes time to, to, to grow up in the Lord. And, and the worst thing that you can do is, is go out and, you know, I see so many younger Christians go out and do real stupid things because they they're get impatient with how fast they're growing or how slow they're growing. And so what do they do? They go out and do something real dumb like they run way ahead of the Lord. Sometimes they'll go into the mission field before their time or seminary or whatever and then they come back sort of with like a dog with his you know tail between his legs. You know, the attrition rate in the mission field very 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 high. It's over 50%. Now, many missionaries running off before their time. Of course, we want to send people as church Uh, This summer, I'm really excited because Denise will be sending Denise out, first missionary from our church. It's really an exciting thing. And, um... The thing is, we don't want to send out people before their time. Uh, And, uh... So when you're looking at your life and you're like, oh, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm just not growing the way I, I, I should. Remember, you're a temple of God and just go back and look in the temple, building the temple and how much time it took, took, uh, it took, what was it, what was it again? 80,000 people with picks quarrying, uh, you know, picking away at the stone. And that's what uh, the Holy Spirit uh, is, is doing in your life. Some of you are like, "Yeah, well, that I can relate to." But uh, anyway, so but anyway, if you, 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 I'll just say this to encourage you: if you are doing your part—that is, those four things in Acts two forty-two—the word, prayer, fellowship, communion—believe me, He's doing His work. He's chipping, He's purging, He's refining, He's pruning. Now, if you're if if you're not in the word. If you're not in fellowship, if you're not in prayer, well, yeah, don't expect to grow. Don't expect, expect the temple to, to be growing or moving forward or maturing. So the good news is that if, if you've fallen away in any of these areas, there's grace and you can begin today and to, to submit yourself to the master uh, craftsman, your Lord Jesus, who wants to just mold you into his image. But also, let this be, you know, Jesus judge not. Let this be a motivation for us not to judge other Christians, other churches. Not to judge each other. We're all under construction. So chapter 5, the uh, temple is completed. Next thing they do is they bring the ark in. They bring the ark in. Verse 2, now Solomon assembled the elders and, and all the heads of the tribes, the chief "...fathers of children of Israel in Jerusalem, that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is in Zion. Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast, which was in the seventh month." So all the elders, verse 4, of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy persons that were in the tabernacle priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for the multitude. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark And the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. Now the poles extended so that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. Now nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb. So this is the Ten Commandments. When the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And so here is the ark being brought in uh, to the temple. Remember when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, God made a decision at that time for the first time since the Garden of Eden. He would be go right down and live in the midst of the people. And so he he dwelled over the ark, above the mercy seat, and inside the ark was, um, was the Ten Commandments. And I guess there was some manna in there too, and was it Aaron's rod, staff? And it's unknown what happened to those things, by the way. Probably, the, who knows, maybe the Philistines took it when they had had it for a while or whatever. But by this time, it's just the... Uh, two tablets, the Ten Commandments are in the Ark. Now the Ark, remember, you may remember from um, uh, Exodus 25 uh, that it was four feet long, it was two feet um, wide and two feet high. So it's a a rather small box and it's interesting, it's made, it was made, if you look at Exodus 25, out of acacia wood. Now the interesting thing about acacia wood is that it does not rot, that's why, I like people, they make raiders of the lost ark and, and they actually think the thing is still around somewhere. Um, the, the, the ark is made out of a kind of wood that does not uh, rot. It's always found in dry sand or dry ground. Uh, when you, uh, uh, inside of it, uh, there's, if, if a lot of pressure is put on it, there's like a gum uh, that comes out a, like a medicine. Uh, that is used to this day for healing. And uh, there are also thorns that come out of this tree. Now, the ark speaks of Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, even as the the wood, the ark, was made out of wood that did not rot, Jesus' body, the Bible says, did not see corruption. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, the book of Hebrews says. Um, now Jeremiah says what that Jesus was. Uh, he prophesied says Jesus would be the Messiah would be a root out of dry ground, and so that's uh, just as the acacia wood that uh, came out of dry ground, this, That so the prophet said Jesus would. And healing uh, comes from him. By his stripes were healed. And of course Jesus wrote, uh, wore the throne uh, of, of, of uh, the um, the crown of thorns as a crown. And the Ark, by the way, was also, was a, the box was covered with gold that speaks uh, of his royalty. Now, again, in the Ark was the Ten Commandments. On top of the Ark, there was the mercy seat, and it was made out of solid gold. Remember, there was two angels, and they were both, like, pointing towards the mercy seat. And so, it's important to understand that those are two different pieces of furniture, if you will. There was an ark, and there was the mercy seat. Mercy seat was a completely different set of furniture that was put on top of the ark. Now, in Exodus 25, God says to Israel, he says, there I will meet you. Where? Above the mercy seat. Actually, it was only the, the high priest who went in there once a year, but um, he says, there I will meet you. And so I'm glad that, that um, again, it's important we understand the mercy seat's different from the ark itself. Uh, I'm so glad that the God said that, you know, I'll meet you in, in the, did not say I'll meet you in the ark. Because what is in the ark? The Ten Commandments. And we are not even close to uh, meeting the Ten Commandments. No, he said, I'll meet you at the mercy seat. And that's the place where, of course, we want to meet the Lord, is, is, at the, is at the mercy seat, not on the basis of the law. However, the ark, remember, represents Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all of it, completely. And, um, and, and so, uh, he fulfills the law, but God meets us on the basis of mercy. Now, what was uh, sprinkled once a year on the mercy seat by the high priest on the Day of Atonement the blood of uh, the, the blood was sprinkled, and that of course represents the, the blood of Jesus Christ. So he meets us at the mercy place. Verse nine it says that the poles extended so that the ends of the pole, the ark could be seen from the holy place. So remember there's a veil between the holy place and the most holy place. There's a veil, a covering, a uh, you know, you couldn't go from one place to, to, to the other because there was a veil there. The, uh, although it was made out of cloth, the high priest could get through. But it, in the King James translation, it says the poles were drawn out from the ark. Now remember that, the, so that's, you know, there's some commentators that look at verse 9 here in the New King James Version and they wince. Because this is, there's, they like to make a big distinction. The King James says the poles were taken out or drawn out uh, from the ark. Remember the ark was carried around on poles on, uh, you know, on the shoulders of the priests. But there's an important point that some scholars make about, look, they're missing the point. It's not that they were extended, they were taken out and it was placed there in the, holy pl- in the most holy place, and that's supposed to represent that the temple, they're no longer going around like in the tabernacle. Remember, they got up from place to place, from place to place from place to place, And, um, you know, the cloud of the Lord was above Israel wherever they went. And if the cloud stayed for a year, they'd stay there for a year. If the cloud left, the Israel would leave. Uh, But here in the temple, there's a sense of permanence. And so the poles were taken out. And that represents, uh, some people believe, that represents just, um, you know, the tabernacle uh, represents uh, the first coming of Christ, where we're just pilgrims. And we're there for a short time. And then we leave. The temple, however, the, the poles are taken out and, and Jesus is there. It represents Jesus in his second coming where he is going to be just placed uh, in uh, the temple and he will reign uh, there for a thousand years in the millennial reign. And so, uh, not sure who, which translator is right, but uh, some make that distinction in verse 9 there. So in verse 11, it says, And it came to pass when the priests, so they're putting the ark in the temple. This is a big time event. It says, And it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place, for all the priests who were uh, present had sanctified themselves without keeping to their divisions. And the Levites, who were the singers, all those of Asaph and He-Man, we've seen He-Man before, that's Greg, He-Man. And Judithan, with their sons and their brethren, stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps. And with them, one hundred and twenty priests, sounding with trumpets. I mean, this is one kind of worship team here. Now listen, this is important. Verse 13. Indeed it came to pass, when the trumpeteers and singers were as one... So they're all, you know, worshiping in unison there, the worship team, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice, so they're singing with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised uh, the Lord, saying what? For he is good, for his mercy endures forever, and that the the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not continue, in, continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house. Now that word glory, the Hebrew word kabod means heavy weight. So it's sort of the weight, of the presence of the Lord. And this wasn't a bad weight, this is like a good weight. It um, was so heavy in there, they had, they had to stop ministering. They were so overwhelmed by the presence of the Lord. Now, we would do really well to take a very close look at at these three verses, because I don't know about you, but I certainly want to be able to learn whatever I need to do, or we as a church need to do, to bring in the glory of the Lord into our midst. The glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. In our midst. How do they say it happened here? I believe the number one thing is there was a lot of these musicians, a lot of people there. Verse 13 says, they were as one to make one sound. You know, brothers and sisters, when you and I and we together with one mind and one heart... Praise the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, something really special happens. You know we come here to church supremely to worship the lord that's why it's called a worship service it's called a worship service um, because we just we we want to bless the heart of the, of the Lord now we worship. We we revolve our services around the word of God because the Bible says we want to worship in spirit and in truth, but you know, you don't have to you can get a tape of of this message or this morning. You can listen to it on the internet. Now you can go I guess to the radio or whatever. <laughs> Or you can look at a service on TV, uh, on TV and you hear people with that kind of attitude. What's the point now? There's this internet. So have you guys heard of these internet services? These internet churches? There's some internet church. Like, we're the biggest church in the world now. We're 144,000 people plug in every Sunday. The thing is, they are missing the whole point of a worship service. You know, we come together to bless God. To, with, with one heart and one mind to, to praise him and worship him in, in, in spirit and, and in truth, and you know put down our our petty little differences and and you know uh, the, 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 you know the, our right to ourselves you know the world in the United States, it defines itself sometimes with, you know, the 70s, it was uh, finding yourself. The 80s, it was improving yourselves. It, in, in, in the 90s, it was uh, get rich yourself. But, you know, in the body of Christ, it's to lose yourself. You lose yourself and you go and with one heart and one mind, we come to, to bless the Lord. And, you know, I think of my own family And what a tremendous blessing it is just to have all my kids with me, around me. I just love it when all my kids are around me. I, I don't really get these jokes. I'm not just being hyper spiritual. I'm I'm really serious. I don't get these jokes about you know we can't wait till the kids get out of the house. I, I I love my kids when they're around me and they're at the dinner table or whatever and you know but someday they are gonna be um, uh, moving on if if the Lord tarries. and uh, and you know but but God willing of course we'll be getting together from time to time at holidays or whatever and. But how horrible it would be for one of my kids, or any kid for this matter, to say, well, you know, I'm related to my mom and dad. What's the point of me actually having to go, you know, to them? I mean, the, the point of all of it is, is that it blesses my heart. It's not, you're right, you're not required to come to church, technically. Technically. But the reason to come to church is to bless the heart of the Lord. He likes all his children in one place at one time. I love to have my kids, uh, all five of them, in one place at one time with me. It doesn't mean as much when they're at, you know, you know different places at, at different times and that type of stuff. I like, And it, it's the same way with the Lord. And, you know, we talk a lot around here about the importance of... Coming to church on the basis of, you know, you don't want to fall into sin and and you need to be encouraged by the brethren and it's important for your own accountability to be around brothers and sisters in Christ. And all that is true, but the number one reason you come to church is not for each other. It's to bless the Lord. And that's what they did here. He was so blessed, the glory of the Lord filled this place <laughs> And it was so intense that they, had, they couldn't even minister anymore. And, uh, you know, I, so often time in the worship service, it, it, it is such a blessing. And you, do, you really hear our worship team. And uh, I, I, I love what, you know, our, our, the, what the Lord has done through our worship team. And it, it, you just feel the presence of the Lord. You can't do that listening to the, my sermon on a CD. You may fall asleep and crash, you know, if you're in a car. But, but um, you know, but but, but but so that is the, of course, do we want to be built up in the word of God? Absolutely. Uh, and do we want to be accountable? And do we want to develop relationships? You know, the Bible does say, as long as it's called today, we need to be around each other, encouraging each other. Hebrews 3.13. It's the number one thing. We want to bless our God. What did they say? It says, with one Sound, it says in verse thirteen. What they were just singing: "You are good; your mercy endures forever." That's pretty cool because that's what we were singing this morning, wasn't it? I just realized that right now. <laughs> Lord, you are good; your mercy endures forever. And just just coming in and, and blessing the heart of the Lord. And they had with one heart and, with, uh, and, and one mind. I always think of, uh, of the verse in Romans chapter 15. This is one to put to memory. Paul is closing out his letter in Romans and he says to them, Now may the God... Of patience and comfort. It's an interesting name of God there. May the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded towards one another. So one, oneness there, according to Christ Jesus, verse 6, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to bless God when we get together. God dwells in the midst of his people. And so the priority of, of, um, of being with the, in the body of Christ. Chapter 6, it says that, Then Solomon spoke, The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. So what does that mean? The Lord dwells in a dark cloud. Well, you know if it has been—I am told that if when an atomic bomb is detonated, that anyone within a fifty-mile radius who looks at the explosion is permanently and immediately blinded. That's what I've been told. And you can only, and if that's one Adam, you can only imagine God, if the fullness of God is revealed to a fallen being, what the effect would be on them. And that's yet another illustration to us about just what Jesus went through. Again, the judgment it says the brass on the dork that was used cannot be determined. It's the, the in, in the brass in the temple, the judgment that he went through, so that the Lord will be ushered into the presence of the Lord. He's no longer will be in a dark cloud. Will actually be able, to, you know, the Bible says in heaven there will be no need of the sun or the moon because of just of the presence of the Lord. So how? much that Jesus suffered on on our behalf dwells in a dark cloud because man if he doesn't dwell behind a dark cloud we're in a lot of trouble without Christ and so then it goes on in verse three it says then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing and he said blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David saying since the day I brought my people out of the land of Egypt I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there nor did I choose any man to be ruler over my people Israel yet I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. And of course it was Solomon who had the privilege of actually building the temple. You know, I understand, I've never been to Jerusalem, I understand that all things considered, it's not the, it's not, there are places in the world, I guess the, way the phrase is like this, there are places in the world that are more beautiful than Jerusalem. But God has made it the most beautiful place in the world. He's chosen to do that. Samaria up in northern Israel, I'm told, is far in the natural, far more beautiful. In fact, that's what Ahab and Jezebel picked for their palace. said in that spot of, um, of Samaria in the west, I'm told that, you can see the Mediterranean the east, the Jordan the north. There's Mount Hermon with its white caps, incredible beauty up there. Jerusalem, very ordinary place, but God chose it to make it beautiful. And I do understand from people that who have been to Jerusalem, there's just something about that place. There's just a beauty there that uh, the, um, that is um, this is like a supernatural uh, beauty. So God took some place rather ordinary made it beautiful he does the same with you does the same with me you may not be in the world's eyes someone who will be on Vogue magazine or whatever or what's that one for what's that uh, I forget that uh, magazine for for guys GQ, Mag- GQ that's it now, well, some people like Josh may wind up on GQ someday, but but seriously, I'm sorry, Josh. But um, <laughs> most people, you know, most of us, uh, you know, are not going to wind up on GQ or Vogue or whatever. However, God will take you, and just as we've already read, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He will chip away, he will, he will fashion, and he will make you something Uh, Something beautiful. And, and, you know, so he chose Jerusalem. He also chose Solomon. That's a very interesting choice of the person to build the temple. Temple is just such a front and center in the Old Testament. Why? Because it's a foreshadowing of Jesus. He chose Solomon, who was the son, as you know, of David and Bathsheba. Their first son was conceived in adultery to try to cover it, cover it up. David killed Bathsheba's husband. Now you would think that that's not the relationship that God would choose really to, to, to bless the world with. The line of the Messiah. You'd think he'd say, well, this this thing, this relationship, it began in corruption, so we need to put it out to the pasture. But you know something? God has mercy. And there were consequences for what they did, but God took what had started in corruption and he made something absolutely beautiful out of it. And you know, you in your past may have blown it in a big way. You know, you look in your past and in in a relationship or maybe you you've been divorced and or or, or whatever and and uh, I just think this is just so encouraging to think that he took that relationship that began on such a rotten foundation, but he cleaned it all up, he restored what the locusts had stolen, and he made something just incredibly powerful out of it. He, he Their son, there's a lot of other sons, or at least tw- 20 sons. There's probably many, many more. And David guy got around. He got himself to a lot of trouble with it as well. But there were at least 20 sons that were named. Could have been anyone else. Could have been a more legitimate, if you would, marriage. It's amazing, you know. Once God saw the brokenness in David's heart, Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. That was all the Lord needed. And from then on, he was going to bless David. He chose to bless him. He's like that with you. He's like that with me. He will take something that may have a, something in your life. Maybe your life does have. Maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you spent the first couple of years of your Christian life just a rotten foundation. Well, let me tell you, you know. One of the most tragic things I see are are Christians who come up with these confessions and, and they just hold them down like dragging around anvils and anchors and weights for the rest of their life. But that's such a lack of understanding of the grace of God. I mean, this is the Old Testament. This is even before Jesus and the blood of Jesus who covered all our sins. Look at how merciful God is. When he saw David, the brokenness of his heart, that's all it took. And so what Satan meant for evil God meant for good. And so it's very wrong for people to come down on Christians for mistakes they've done in their past. God will deal with it. He'll chasten it. He'll chasten you. He'll deal with you. But then He wants to bless you. Nothing does He want more than but to bless your life and use you to be an aroma him to grace people like we read about this morning in 2 Corinthians 4. For either your grace to spread to many. So God is a God of second chances, third and fourth chances. So Solomon was the one. He was the son of a relationship that began in adultery. But he was the one who God chose to carry out this just phenomenal work. It says in verse twelve that Solomon stood before the altar of God in the presence of um, all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands. And he goes on here to uh, pray a prayer. We won't we'll we'll take that up next week. But it's um, pretty amazing that verse thirteen. It says he made a a bronze platform to pray on. So here you have the king of Israel. On a bronze plat- uh, 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 platform, I forget how each cube is. how many feet? Is that two and a half feet? So it's, it's like way up in the air, and you have this king just humbling himself, spreading out his hands, you know, on his knees, whatever. It's hard to stumble and fall when you're on your knees because it's one of the most stable positions you'll ever be in, is on your knees. And what a blessing here to see a leader, and we should be praying this for our own leaders they'll get to this place. It says, it, verse 13, he knelt down on his knees before all the assembly and spread out his hands towards heaven. So we will pick it up there next time we meet. Let's close and prayer. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for uh, this word that you uh, have had for us this evening. And And Lord, I think I can speak for most everyone, if not everyone in this room, Lord, we... We want to bless your heart, just like it says in Romans, with one in one heart, with one heart and one uh, mouth and one mind, uh, we want to just praise you and bless you. We want to be as your children. We want to be here together, not bickering with one another. Lord, but even as your word says, treating each other better than ourselves, giving greater honor to one another, gracing each other, Lord, as we talked about this morning. And Lord, we know that that blesses you. Father, we want to see your glory. We want to see the kabod. We want to just uh, minister and worship in your presence, Lord. And just to bless your holy name, for you are good, Lord. And your mercy uh, lives forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you would like to... uh, Pray with us this evening. In 15 minutes, some of us will be here praying and each week we pray for a different ministry and the one that we're going to pray for uh, this week in addition to any other personal prayer requests you may have. We're going to be praying for um, the open air campaigners. That's the, the evangelists that we have here in Boston that we support. They've taught us our model that we're now using over in the Uh, Housing Development and Alice Taylor right now. We're very grateful to them. Actually, Aaron Wentz, who's with the Open Air Companion, is going to be coming in a few weeks. Just share with us for a few uh, minutes before the service. He's having another one of those uh, week-long training sessions that I would highly encourage uh, you guys to get involved with if the the Lord wills. Uh, But anyway, we want to pray for them. The city of Boston passed an ordinance prohibiting them from ministering in the way they want to minister. Let's just put it like that, because they do a lot of painting and that type of stuff. So let's just pray that that thing gets overturned. I think that um, there is some sort of legal proceeding going on. Let's pray for their protection. Let's pray for their perseverance. Let's pray that they would be out there willing to be chipped away at. It's so humbling out and having people uh, throwing insults and thinking you're like the craziest person on the face of the earth, and they—that's what they're doing day in and day out. And so, I just let's pray this evening that they would live in the awareness, uh, awareness as we were talking about this morning, that though their outer man is perishing, their inner man is being renewed day by day. And they, as much as anyone, need that to be in that kind of hardcore ministry. So um, if you want to stay around and pray, please do. if not, God bless you. You raising your hand, Mr. Benjamin. Who are you? I haven't seen you around.